Amen. It's been a great uh, few weeks uh, here in our worship team. I appreciate all the folks that have been filling in, uh, Nanelle, obviously, in the team, Brandon, who was here last week, and others uh, during this season. It's been a great spirit of worship, and uh, someone even commented uh, a couple of weeks ago in uh, the prayer card uh, about how wonderful it's been uh, to experience the spirit in the room. And so just thank you for being worshipers. Uh, we should do it all the time, right? We're called to be worshipers. And so uh, let's worship in spirit and truth all the time. Well, today <clears throat> we're going to look at a passage uh, in First Samuel, as you might guess, uh, in chapter 17, probably the, one of the most famous stories in all of history, a true story. But before we get there, uh, Randy mentioned our Thanksgivers dinner uh, in a couple of weeks, two weeks from today, as a matter of fact, uh, Thanksgiving is my favorite time of the year. Uh, lots of food and little expectation. Uh, what a holiday. Uh, and so uh, we are going to collect an offering as we've done every year called our Thanksgivers offering. And, and this year, uh, that offering is going to go to three different ministries. Uh, 4B Disaster Response Network, which was a local uh, response uh, network, uh, kind of formed after Hurricane Harvey. Uh, this group uh, has served over 1,600 homes uh, in our area. Uh, 4B is from the Bay to the Beltway, or excuse me, from the beach to the Beltway, uh, from the Bay to Brazoria County. Uh, and so that's kind of this region where we are. And so they've serviced and helped 1,600 families get back into their homes uh, throughout disasters, uh, particularly Hurricane Harvey. So we're going to support them. For All Mankind Movement, FAM, uh, is a mission-sending organization that also does church planting in some of the least uh, Christian nations around the world, uh, India, Pakistan, Nepal, uh, all are at less than 2% uh, evangelical Christians. So they work there to plant churches uh, with indigenous peoples there. And then uh, if you were here last Sunday, which probably a third of you were, because as I mentioned a few weeks ago, a third of you are here a third of the time. So if I say something nine times, I'll probably get everybody. Um, but I usually don't do that. Uh, and so we went to a, a mission, on a mission trip to Vancouver. Uh, four or five of us went uh, to help a church, Westland Baptist. They are doing a tremendous work with refugees from the Ukraine, and, and we want to support and encourage them uh, and help them uh, minister those folks. Uh, one of the, the ladies uh, who had recently immigrated from Ukraine accepted Christ on, on the retreat we were part of, which was a great thing. Uh, that was a wonderful thing. And uh, and so anytime someone accepts Jesus, uh, not just do we rejoice, but uh, heaven rejoices and, and we'll do that. So that's the Thanksgivers. We're, we'll be collecting uh, starting now. If you go online, you can do that uh, at the actual dinner. Uh, we'll take cash, check, and money order, I suppose, uh, these days as well. Uh, but you can go online and make an offering also. So today we're going to look at uh, the greatest underdog story of all time. Uh, we all love an underdog story. Some of you know Kurt Warner, uh, the famous football quarterback. Uh, they even made a movie about him recently, uh, about his uh, championship season. He was basically a nobody. Uh, he got uh, signed by the, Ram by the Rams, uh, and they went to the Super Bowl. And amazing story. They made a movie about it. Uh, we love stories like that. We love stories in March. Uh, there's a thing called March Madness. If you know anything about college basketball, it's their tournament. And everyone loves the Cinderella team, the team that's not expected to do much. Uh, they're kind of got in by the you know, skin of their teeth, and yet they make an amazing run. Everyone cheers for them, gets excited about them. If you've been watching uh, 
anything related to sports in the last few weeks. Uh, there's a young man who has Down syndrome. He's become the first person with Down syndrome to complete an Ironman triathlon. And if you think that's no big deal, uh, run a marathon. But before you do that, bike a hundred and some odd miles and swim several miles in the ocean. That's what a marathon is, 140 some odd miles of swimming, biking, and running. No, thank you. Um, and he did it. In addition to that, he's also completed the Boston Marathon and the New York Marathon, which again, by itself is amazing. But we love these underdog stories. And, and today we're going to look at the greatest underdog story, David and Goliath. And, and we're going to be in chapter 17 of Samuel First Samuel, so if you can turn there. But I want to give you the context as we begin today. There, there's a king, and his name is Saul. Uh, Saul, King Saul, is in the process of losing his throne, losing the kingdom. God is removing him from kingship, but he's still the king. And God has anointed David, this young boy, uh, to be king. And so there in the middle of, of, a, of a battle with the Philistines, David is back home in Bethlehem while Saul and the armies are battling uh, the Philistines. And, and I ran out of time last week, and I'm going to run out of time this week, but last week I was going to share with you this thought that oftentimes is true in the Old Testament, but it's true in our lives, that, that God gave the people of Israel what they wanted. And what they wanted was a king, and so they gave, God gave them a king. He was head and shoulders above everyone else. He was tall and good looking. Those were his only redeemable qualities. So they made him king. So God gives the people what, he, what they want, and it's a bad idea. Because what they needed was to trust in God, their creator. And so God gives them what they want. But then God, in his mercy and his compassion for his people, prepares a better option. And that better option is David, King David, who will become king. And how true is that in our life that we think we know what's best and God lets us have it. And then we realize, oh, that was a bad choice. And God, in his compassion, his grace redeems those moments. And that's what God is going to do here. That's what he is doing in this moment. He's going to show the people what a better king is. He's going to foreshadow what the greatest king looks like. And so Saul, when he began his leadership of Israel, he had to go into battle against Ammon, A-M-N-O-N. If you read in the Bible about the Ammonites, uh, that's the king, King Ammon of the Ammonites, uh, this real people group. And today we're going to look at David and his initial battle against the Philistines and specifically against Goliath of Gath called the Gittites. And so they have these two, they have this great battle. And again, I want to remind you, this is a true story. This happened. There's a real nation called Israel, a real nation called Philistine, the people of Gath. And they're in battle against one another. And this giant, Goliath, is terrorizing Israel and the armies of Israel. 
He's blaspheming God. And he and the Philistines have the armies of Israel pinned, and not just pinned, scared. And if you're a soldier, if you're in the military, being scared and pinned is a bad place to be. It's not a good place. So let's look at the story again, perhaps with some new lenses on this morning, uh, beginning in 1 Samuel 17. We're going to start in verse 4. And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. He had a helmet of bronze and on his head had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail. You need to like not from the post office. Um, we need to translate to scales, like this scaly coating. whose height was six cubits and a span. He had a helmet of bronze on his head and he was armed with a coat of mail. And the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. And he had bronze armor on his legs and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam and his spear's head the weight of 600 shekels of iron. And his shield bearer went before him. Like, I don't understand that. Why do you need a guy before you when you're that awesome? But he did, went before him. He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine? And are you not of servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistines said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. And when Saul and all of Israel heard the words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Now this battle is taking place about 15 miles west of Bethlehem. And who is from Bethlehem? Mm, See, you guys, you did slightly better than the first service. Some of you chose not to answer because you were afraid of getting it wrong. There are no difficult questions from the stage today or any day. Some of you, mostly on this side, said Jesus, which is the correct answer. Jesus is from Bethlehem, but for the moment... Who is from Bethlehem in our story? David. Yes. So David, his hometown, the city of David, Bethlehem, the birthplace of Jesus, is about 15 miles west of the battle. Or the battle is 15 miles west of Bethlehem. So that would be as if you and I, if we were thinking about it in our terms here, if we were right here at First Baptist Friendswood and we were going to go into battle, we would walk to the Bass Pro Shop or to Shadow Creek High School at 288 and the Beltway to give you some perspective. That sounds like fun, doesn't it? Oh, no, by the way, it's not flat land like what we have and nice roads like 518. No, it's hilly and the hills and valleys. And he's probably, David, you're going to see later, brings food. And he's probably got a donkey and he's carrying this. So it'll probably take you, you know, at 20 minutes a mile, about six hours to make that trek. And so here they are about 15 miles west, and there's this giant of a man, Goliath, 
somewhere between seven feet tall and nine and a half feet tall. So perspective, that's at least six inches taller than me, uh, maybe three feet taller than me. And probably has a few more pounds on him than I do. And his armor, all this detailed armor that weighed over 200 pounds. Just the armor weighed over 200 pounds. He's got this long sword. He's got a, a spear. And, and what you may not know, because I'm sure all of you are really up on military history in the Old Testament, this is actually the longest military description in all of the Old Testament. Not talking about an army, not, not talking about several armies. The longest military description in all of the Old Testament is about one guy. One guy. And his armor. And, oh, by the way, his armor bearer. And I guess he needs maybe to take the first shots. And so here you have this giant of a man who has scared everyone, and he declares to the whole army of Israel, thousands and thousands of men, why are you here? Why are you here? You're guaranteed to lose. So why did you even show up to the game? Because I'm going to win. You're servants of Saul, which was actually not right. That's what the people believed, that they were servants of Saul, but in reality, they were servants of the living God. The challenge that you and I face, just like the armies of Israel faced, is that Goliath declared their destiny, defeat. He was blaspheming God. He was ridiculing them. He was mocking Israel. His one goal, and he achieved it, his one goal was to create fear in the army and in the people. And so if you, don't, if you have any doubt today, let me clear it up for you. The enemy of God, his goal is to create fear in you. That's the goal of the enemy of God, is to create fear in you. That you would be afraid that you would be scared, that you would be paralyzed, that, that you would be pinned down in fear. Because what does fear do? Fear creates doubt. And, and when you and I doubt, we usually make poor decisions. You, you've seen that commercial, right? I can't even remember what the commercial is actually for, but it's so awesome. It's these three young adults that are out late at night. It's dark on a dusty road. There's a convertible running in the distance, and, and they're obviously being chased. And in the, in the side view, there's a, a garage-type area full of chainsaws. And they're running from what looks like, you know, the chainsaw, Texas Chainsaw Massacre guy. And it's like, hey, where should we go? How about we run over here to the chainsaws? And the one guy's like, well, what about the running cart? No, no, that's a trap. <laughs> like the obvious safe way to go. No, that can't be the right thing. Let's run to the chainsaws. That's what happens when fear grips you. You make poor decisions. You go to the wrong places. 
And so for 40 days, 40 days, Goliath comes out before the armies of Israel, blasphemes God, mocks them, taunts them. Why are you even here, you losers? You're, you're already lost. 40 days, get somebody, bring him out here, and we'll fight. That's what he did. Taunted them constantly. Maybe you've experienced that. Where someone is just constantly taunting you, belittling you, frustrating you, telling you how you won't be successful. That's the enemy speaking. It worked. Because Saul, the king, his brothers, the brothers of David, all the soldiers, they were all scared. But David, the guy bringing the food, comes and is like, what is going on? What are they talking about? He didn't want any part of what Goliath had to say. Because he believed that no one, no one should come against God. More importantly, no one could come against God. And so let's see what David's response to all this fear is. Turn the page probably to verse 26 and let's pick it up. And David said to the men who stood by him, what shall be done for the man who kills the Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? Not the reproach from Saul, the reproach of Israel. For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And the people answered him in the same way. Basically, he'll be great. So shall it be done to the man who kills him? Verse 28 is an important one. Now Eliab, his eldest brother, that's David's brother, heard when he spoke to the men. And Eliab's anger was kindled against David, and he said, Why have you come down? Uh, to bring you food, buddy. That's why. But, uh, and with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? There's a little dig. I know your presumption and the evil of your heart, for you have come down to see the battle. Hmm. Now skip ahead a couple of verses to verse 31. When the words that David spoke were heard, they repeated them before Saul, and he sent for him. And David said to Saul, let no man's heart fall because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. And Saul said to David, you are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a youth, and he has been a man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them. For he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of the Philistine. And Saul said to David, go and the Lord be with you. 
David is a bold young man. And his boldness reaches all the way to the king. And so the king calls him in. And, and, and what they do in this moment is kind of figure out who is this Goliath exactly? Well, David is asking the right questions as he, as he comes into the scene. Like, who does this guy think he is? Who, who does he think he is? Who would defy the armies of the living God? Not the armies of Saul, not these great warriors, the Israelites. No, who would defy the armies of the living God? And why are you afraid? We serve a living God, not the little g gods of Goliath. No, we serve the mighty God. And and if you and I were on that scene and we were one of the soldiers, we might think something like, David, that's great, buddy. Such youthful idealism. Go, go, go give some people some food and run along. What we probably wouldn't think is, this guy has it right. He, he has faith in God like none of us have. He has faith in the one true God faith that we don't have. Even his own brother chastises him and accuses him of having some ulterior motive. You ever been accused of having an ulterior motive? When you live out boldly for your faith, maybe you're wanting, people think you want something. When you just want to stand for God. That's what David is doing here. He wants to see God move in a mighty way and he believes it will happen. The trouble is, and sadly, this is sadly the truth, that it's more common for us to live in fear than it is to live with faith as the people of God. Even the people of God, people who say, I love Jesus, I follow after God, fear is still more common in us than it is to have faith. And if you don't believe that, look all through the Old Testament, look in the New Testament, look everywhere, look around. I I, I believe that, oh, God might do it, but probably not. No, we serve a living God who is active, who is strong. And so David's boldness, despite everyone kind of naysaying him, including his big brother, David's words make it all the way to King Saul. And he declares to Saul that he will fight David. And if you need testimony, if you need some references for my abilities, just ask the lions, plural, and the bears, plural, that I killed. Like, did did you catch that? When they took off with the sheep, I went after them and killed them and took it from their mouth. And when they raised up against me, I grabbed him by his beard. Like, that's a dude right there. That's a man grabbing that bear, that lion by the mane. I got you, buddy. You're not going anywhere. And he killed him. And so I'll fight this uncircumcised Philistine. He's no better than an animal, a wild animal. I'll fight him. And so King Saul does what every other king would do, right? Because that's 
what the people of Israel wanted. We want a king like every other nation. And so this king, King Saul, acts like a king from every other nation. Well, if you're going into battle, what do you need? You need armor. And so, David, you don't have any armor, so let me give you my armor. What's the one problem here? Saul is what? Tall. Head and shoulders above everybody else. Maybe the tall king should go fight the tall giant. Maybe. But that's not how the story works out, is it? So he tries to give David his armor. Of course, it doesn't fit because they're different heights. He says, don't worry, I got it. So it would be David who would go before the nation of Israel to fight this giant. David the shepherd, not Saul, the warrior king, who would go. David is not going like a king. He's not going like a warrior. He's not going in a way that would be symbolic of what all the other soldiers would do. Because David understands a very important and valuable lesson that we all need to understand. That our fight against the enemies of God, our our fight uh, against Satan himself, our fight against the, the principalities around us is not one of flesh and blood and swords and sticks. No, it is a fight of faith. And so David goes as the shepherd who is fighting by faith not by sword. So often you and I want to fight by sword, these days by words, usually behind a computer screen. And God's called us to fight by faith, to trust in him, and that's how David goes. We fight by faith, and David goes as a shepherd, not as a king. He knew God was with him. And so Saul says, go. I I imagine this scene, it's not biblical at all, but Saul says to him at the end there, go, the Lord be with you. It's like, okay, go on. Gives a little pat on the backside and out the door like he's leaving the huddle. Like that's the image I get. Like, okay, God be with you. Like, okay, good luck, I'm out. Because Saul had no faith. Saul, Saul was... At the end of his era. But David knew that God was with him. And so I want us to look at the famous lines uh, of this passage. In verse 45, David goes out to meet Goliath. Goliath is there, obviously mocking David, because uh, David's not near as big as him. But in verse 45, David said to the Philistine, you come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin. Pause there. How does he carry all three? I guess he's a giant. He can, he can manage it. You come with all these things, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel whom you have defied. This day, the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I will give 
And I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, and that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. David will leave no doubt that God is the one true God, victor and judge over all. And those of you that know the account know that it's not much of a fight. David doesn't take a sword, doesn't take anything. He gets his five smooth stones that were probably somewhere between the size of a golf ball and a tennis ball. And he slings that first one. I don't know if the helmet wasn't on or what. doesn't matter because David didn't kill Goliath. God did. And the Philistines' little g-gods weren't going to save him. And David was going to leave no second guessing about who conquered the Philistines. It was the Lord. And it was the Lord who saved Israel. Not generals and kings, but the creator, the judge of all, God. And and if you reread the story in its entirety, you'll notice that when Goliath came out, Saul and all the soldiers ran away from Goliath. And what did David do? He ran toward Goliath. Do we run towards the things that we believe full of faith that God has already conquered? Do we run in full faith? Or do we wait and see? Or do we hope for the best? But if you haven't quite realized it yet, we need to be reminded that David did what no other Israelite could do. He did what no other Israelite would do. And he did it in a way that no other Israelite could or would do. He did it full of faith. He did it with the power of God. He did it knowing that the victory was assured. And he did it as a shepherd, not as a warrior king. Does that sound familiar to somebody else we know who did something that you and I couldn't do? He did it in a way that we wouldn't do. He did it as a shepherd, the good shepherd. who went to the cross for your sin and mine, not conquering the Roman Empire, not conquering evil with great military strength, no. As a shepherd, a carpenter from humble beginnings, who was born in this town, the city of David, who went to the cross to defeat the enemy, the enemy of God, Satan himself, in a way that none of us could have ever done. And to redeem all of humanity just as David redeemed Israel in this moment. The good shepherd, Jesus Christ. Not a political, not a military hero, but the one who would lay down his life for you and me. David is a picture of Jesus Christ. And though you might have lots of giants in your life, this story really isn't about giants. 
This story is about doing the thing that no one else could do and about living in the victory that God has already promised. And for you and me, he's promised that victory through Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. And so if you're here this morning and you've never placed your trust in him, I want to invite you to do that today. Because he is the one who gives us victory. And he is the only one over sin and death. He is the one who gives us victory over enemies. Not that our enemies are going to fall like somebody at school you don't like or at the workplace who, who is lazy or doesn't do their job and somehow you're going to get them you know, terminated or whatever. No, not that kind of victory. No, victory over sin and death, the thing that holds us back. And mind you know, Jesus Christ is the one who sets us free. And so if you're here today and you've never put your trust in him, I want to invite you to do so. Because he has done the one thing that you and I cannot do, and that's live perfectly. He's lived perfectly. Without blemish, without sin, he lived perfectly. And he willingly went to the cross to shed his blood, to die so that you and I could live. What victory is that? What great victory is that? And what he asks for us in return is that we would open our lives to him. And we would, we would put our faith in him alone. That his sacrifice for you and me would make a way for us to have a relationship with our Heavenly Father. And so though David... And his slingshot is a great account of an underdog. The victory was already his. And the victory can be yours today. Whether you have been a Christian a long time, let me encourage you to live in victory. Or whether today, for the first time, you're putting your faith in Jesus Christ, you have a new life in victory today.